Welcome everyone to uh, this week's uh, Serious Security Seminar. Uh, we are very pleased to have uh, Robert Dennis, Dennis, sorry, uh, uh, with us. Uh, he's the director of the uh, uh, Security Resilience Systems Group at uh, Riverside Research, uh, and has a lot of experience in, in security, in particular AI, uh, formal, formal methods for security. Uh, I've been the PI and co-PI in several DOD and DARPA grants. And uh, we are uh, very happy to have you talk about Mind the Gap and abilities and opportunities for uh, cyber R&D at the edge. All right, thank you very much. Um, yeah, so I'd like to kind of, you know, start out these, these lectures a little bit different. Uh, you know, kind of obviously not a huge audience, uh, but hopefully, uh, you know, show of hands of, you know, anyone who owning a, a Lenovo laptop, if, you know, you can maybe raise your hand on the Zoom. Uh, and then potentially, uh, you know, for the gamers in the group, you know, anyone who's building their own computer, uh, if you own a, a gigabyte motherboard, uh, you know, raise your hand and I'll happily raise my hand to that one, uh, having built another computer recently. Uh, the reason I bring that up is, you know, we, we think of cybersecurity often as just the, the software within the system, but more and more frequently, it's the hardware working with the software uh, that the vulnerabilities are presenting themselves. And in, in those particular use cases, Lenovo back around 2012, 2013, uh, got in trouble for having backdoors in their, in their BIOS. And more recently, Gigabyte got in trouble with uh, backdoors in their, in their UEFI system, which is what replaced BIOS. So talking about this, you know, a little bit further, you know, I'll give you a little bit of background of, you know, how I got interested into this field. Uh, I'll talk about the motivation of security of, of where, you know, where these gaps come from, from my viewpoint. Uh, you know, minding the gap, everybody gets an opinion. Uh, big, big part of this is the, the adversary has an opinion uh, on what these gaps are. And then, you know, how did the gap get, and kind of a little bit of perspective from my, my side of how the gap got as large as it is. And then a little bit motivation of, you know, some of the near-term things that are ongoing, and then some of the longer-term things that, that we've been looking at on the, the Riverside research side. So talking, you know, a little bit about myself, you know, most of my time has been set, been from the beginning of my career, you know, back all the way to 2004 when I was undergrad at RPI. I interned for the Air Force, uh, been in cybersecurity uh, since then, uh, you know, largely been on the DOD side, you know, small stint in, in healthcare, which uh, scared me to go back to the DOD side a little bit. Uh, but I ultimately, I started out working in anti-tamper and multi-level security, which likely means nothing to a lot of people in this crowd, but anti-tamper, think of it as, if you don't have physical control of the device and someone is trying to, to steal the information off of your, your device, you usually have a series of hardware and software mechanisms uh, to protect that, that device from losing the data. And then on the multi-level security side, you know, think about the DoD, they have a lot of different classified networks and, they let, and you have to often air gap between them. Multi-level security lets you merge those networks back together. Uh, you'll actually see this in the commercial side, especially in like power and gas. Uh, where you'll have often commercial networks, production networks, development networks, and you know, if you're familiar with the Colonial Pipeline side of it, you know the, the network that came down because of ransomware was the billing network, which then took down the pipeline network because they didn't know how much fuel was flow flowing through that pipeline. So getting my start in the career, there was, you know, was a lot of really interesting work in both hardware and software and, and how that worked, and that was where I actually ended up going back to Dartmouth College and started, you know, more of my focus with uh, DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, 
And so full, you know, really focused on secure hypervisor operating system uh, design in the R&D space. So really blue sky type research. Uh, after that, I actually switched back into more edge engineering. You know, R&D is fun, uh, but sometimes, you know, you really want to see what's being out there in the field. Uh, and that's where you see in the pictures there, I got to work with a, a number of naval systems uh, and looking at some of the challenges of deploying security to systems that you know, sometimes are 10, 20, or 30 years old. And how do I, I get something that I may have developed on x86 over to PowerPC? What are the challenges in those type of environments uh, where you have operators who are not PhDs uh, and definitely, you know, a lot of times not really versed in cybersecurity in general and protecting those systems. Uh, coming back to R&D, I got to work on a, a lot of uh, fun projects uh, doing larger system security design. So one of the other pictures there you see is looking at low Earth orbit satellites, uh, working the DARPA Pit Boss program where they're you know, putting up, looking at the security design of putting those satellites into space and how to communicate with them. And then most recently, uh, in three years and since February, we've, I've been at Riverside Research leading a, a team of about 20 folks doing uh, advanced R&D again in cybersecurity, covering hardware, software, RF, uh, a lot of edge compute type devices where, you know, we don't see a lot of that, uh, you know, pure focus that we do of like, you know, large scale program analysis or fuzzing that we have for uh, a lot of our standard open source libraries. So that's a little bit about me, but you know, how do the how do we get here in terms of you know these systems? Uh, obviously, we as security researchers all believe that we should build security, you know, from day one. Uh, what we'll come in come to realize is a lot of times in both commercial and on the defense side, you know, you're building a system to meet a mission, or you're building a system to provide a uh, something a product to a commercial entity. And in doing that, you know, you're designing for that mission or that need first. Then what we often do is after we have that, then we go, okay, uh, especially on the side that I've worked is, you know, is that system safe? So if I built something, can I safely use it? Can you safely use it around someone else? And, and then after that, we start adding in, in the security layers. Uh, unfortunately, if you look at, you know, one of the things, a lot of things that can happen with cybersecurity in general, you know, the simple solution is, you know, let's take GPS spoofing. Uh, if you're flying a drone, you know, an adversary may GPS spoof you and then you've been denied the mission. Uh, worst case scenario, you have more destructive cyber attacks. Uh, one that was caught in the United States would have been the, the, the water plant down in Florida where there was uh, malware discovered that was attempting to, to change the uh, chemical mixtures within the water plant. Uh, an actual example of this would be more of a Stuxnet-like uh, system that broke a uh, industrial control system. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it's always a game of, you know, getting into these systems and, you know, being able to, to laterally move across uh, usually different types of environments that have non-homogenous kind of surfaces in terms of the cybersecurity layout. We're talking PowerPC, you know, control buses, uh, and those type of architectures within the system. So to, uh, trying to kind of graphically represent this, you know, for illustrative purposes, you know, we can debate where some of these bubbles uh, kind of go, you know, ultimately where we see it. Uh, on our side, we did software assurance for a long period of time. You know, now the really the new way that we're seeing this rebranded is software bill of materials, like knowing 
the provenance and the control and the integrity of all of that software, especially open source software, as it comes from the system. Uh, previously, we would call this software assurance. Uh, then we have the traditional software cyber uh, mechanisms that largely a lot of us are all very familiar with. On the hardware cyber, cyber side, that's where you have things like trusted execution environments, uh, trusted platform modules on the, the commercially available side. And then on the other, you know, as you get into more interesting things, you get custom hardware designs, uh, which uh, there's a number of university researchers out there exploring that. Uh, hardware assurance, uh, you know, can be looked at as a mixture of that software assurance side, but looking more at the, the firmware type problem of like FPGAs. Uh, it gets a little blurry in the UEFI and the, you know, like say a GPU driver space. Um, and so you could kind of bin those in one side or the other or both. And then, you know, supply chain, moving away from software, you know, bill of materials like pure supply chain, where's my hardware coming from? Who's manufacturing it? How do I trust that, you know, this piece of hardware is what I actually wanted in the system? But ultimately, you know, as developers, you know, if you're a hardware developer, you're thinking, how is my chip secure? You're not thinking a lot of times, how's the software going to interact with this piece of hardware? You're, you, you, you design the interface and then you hand it to the software developer and your gap focus is looking at what's the security of that piece of hardware. And similarly on the software side, you assume the hardware is going to behave according to the specification that's giving, you're given it. And so we think about on the software side, DevSecOps and all of those traditional security mechanisms that we have available to us and then we kind of ignore the, the hardware side. Uh, you know, ultimately, we're all responsible for this. You know, from an overload perspective, you necessarily aren't going to be an expert on all of these. Uh, however, you know, the fun part about this talk and is our adversaries and researchers, this is where we get to spend a lot of our time, is thinking about those gaps between those systems and then either exploiting them or developing you know, defenses around those mechanisms to, to see where we can go. So if you take a pure software only type look on the system, uh, you know, the solar winds attack, I'm sure most folks have, you know, have seen and heard about. Uh, I like to think of this as, you know, who's watching the watchman type approach. So we have a DevSecOps pipeline, we assume it's safe, we assume it's secure, someone gets into the patch server and we start pushing a ton of vulnerabilities out to, to thousands of devices. Uh, you know, we, kind of it's that implicit trust mechanism. Uh, a more recent one of them is if you saw the, the Fortinet uh, vulnerabilities that were discovered uh, out in Guam, where you basically breached the edge devices that were designed to protect our systems. Ultimately, you know, the gaps in, in the, you know, the, the, solar, the solar winds example is, you know, lack of controls to, you know, do supply chain trust in terms of that DevSecOps pipeline. Uh, if you want to see, you know, a great set of research, uh, Dr. Lori Williams at NC State has just been recently published a whole, you know, guide on how to do better software supply chain security as a starting point. Obviously, reactively, you know, a software bill of materials, knowing where all of our software is, sure that helps us, but it doesn't necessarily solve the problem of, hey, there was a vulnerability in this open source software. It doesn't get us to the point of, of, of patching it. Uh, log for shell that's always an interesting one because it's basically open source software it was a vulnerability that existed for many years and you know we didn't know it was there until until it became a reality uh, straightforward attack that i'm going to talk about a lot but input sanitization so parsers parsers are pretty much everywhere in our code 
and there's a huge body of research out there now that's looking at you know formally verifying parsers, secure parsers, and so thinking about ways that we can include those is is obviously a more long-term solution in that space. Um, and then obviously I have to include Boothole Black Lotus because this is where I started my career. Uh, buffer overflows in BIOS was a, a huge problem back in 2004, 2008. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, Boothole UAFI buffer overflow. And then again, the same buffer overflow in 2023. You know, so a lot of these problems, they don't go away quickly. You know, we solve them or we don't solve them or we don't you know, put out the patches that we necessarily need to on the software side. But we don't have to beat up just the software folks. There's the same problem on the hardware side. Uh, you know, trusted execution environments, uh, ARM Trust Zone, you know, being the, the big you know, exemplar in this space. You know, we're, giving, we're given hardware capabilities that allow us to secure you know, a, a very secure space to perform computing in. Uh, and then the hardware developers you know, hand it over to the software developers. And then we you know, go ahead and you know, mess things up between that hardware and software interface. Uh, so these are, you know, the hardware developers don't come up with as much fun names on, on their CVEs. So, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, name them here a little bit. Uh, QCCom is a good example of this. So in ARM, you have the, you know, the trusted world and the untrusted world. And this was just a, a messaging service between those that had a uh, buffer overflow. Uh, the, the sad part about this one was the lack of ASLR, which is something that we've had on the software side for a long period of time, which is ad address space layout randomization, which basically means your program gets reordered, reordered every time it's loaded, uh, allowed this vulnerability to be repeated over you know, a widespread of systems without much uh, you know, mucking around in terms of the, the lack of randomization. Uh, potentially, you know, longer term, you know, there's some tagged architecture research that's going on both in commercial and uh, heavily in the RISC-V space that, that could potentially be a, a good help here. And then, uh, you know, just a, always a fun one, uh, Keymaster, uh, they actually rolled their own crypto uh, and, you know, they reused the input ve initialization vector in that code, which led then to, in, you know, key reuse attacks. And then all of a sudden the keys are leaking out. And the simple solution when it comes to crypto is, don't ever roll your own crypto. We've got cryptographers on our team. We don't roll our own crypto. We use a lot of the libraries that a lot of other folks have been staring at for a number of years. So how did we kind of get here? Um, so I'm an OS developer by trade. I did my you know, PhD work in operating systems, uh, hypervisors, the virtualization layer. And if you go out there today and you search you know, operating system stack, you get this pretty picture on the right that says, here's your hardware, here's your hypervisor, here's your operating system, here's your application space. And as humans, we look at this and we have a false notion that the hardware is very stable. It's the same size, if not bigger than everything else on the system. The application space, you know, the applications, the operating systems are often much smaller. And in reality, you know, if you look down here, a lot of the work that's done by another colleague of mine at Riverside Research, Dr. Scott Brooks, uh, he documented this in the Transcending the Teetering Tower of Trust. Uh, the hardware is actually a very small footprint of your system. And so if you're asking your hardware to protect the layer above it, then you have, you know, a, say a hypervisor, which is then multiplexing an operating system, which is then multiplexing applications. And any disruption at those lower layers leads to significant compromise is at the higher layers. 
And oftentimes we, you know, we, we view the hardware as very stable and it can do a lot more for us. And largely because of this notion that, you know, we, we show this picture, uh, which I'm also guilty of, you know, doing, but trying to think of these things a little bit differently is that we have a small trusted compute base that needs to manage a very large untrusted compute base. So what have we done to date? You know, obviously I'm, I'm a researcher in this field. Uh, you know, a lot of this has been putting security in a lower layer. Uh, so when hypervisors came out, that was where a lot of my focus was, was working, you know, at that layer below it to provide a lot of introspection and control of the operating system and the applications above that space. However, then we found out about system management mode and the solution to system management mode was put a hypervisor inside of system management mode. And then when we did that, we got the management engine. And these are kind of x86 examples where we're effectively just turtles all the way down in terms of, you know, just keep going lower, add more code, add more software, and eventually we'll get to the, you know, that perfect ground truth of, of protection. Uh, another way of looking at this, um, which has seen, I'd say, arguably a lot more success is strengthening within in the layer itself. So formal methods, uh, we do a lot of work with that in, in that space, being able to, to prove that, you know, a core piece of your system is secure. Uh, you can't necessarily make, you know, guarantees around it. Uh, and we're working on that as, a, as an open problem. Um, and then obviously there's just access control. Uh, the challenge obviously with access control is just scalability for anyone who's had to, to work with SE Linux or XSM Flask. Uh, being able to make sure that you set that up correctly from a configuration management perspective is is sometimes a, a daunting task. And then uh, obviously the you know the the bigger area of research that, that I'd say is is kind of emerging now is it, you know it's con the confidential computing or you know being able to encrypt your you know your software so you have like fully homomorphic encryption uh, which isn't necessarily fast. Uh, you have Intel SDX, which obviously has been attacked numerous times at this point, uh, and being able to somehow, you know, protect the, from the outside world your software encrypted and then hope it doesn't leak out. Uh, but then another area of, I'd say, interesting research, especially as, you know, first we saw the delay, of, you know, we didn't see processing speeds continue to increase anymore. So then we got multi-core. Now we have multi-core, but you don't necessarily see a huge traction of people making good use of multi-core systems. So now you get a lot more multiprocessor system on chips. You've got AI accelerators, you have GPU accelerators, and you're, you know, you're seeing this, you know, more of a federated process of moving all these pieces out to various, you know, accelerated compute modes and, and then kind of coming back together, uh, which I think is a promising area of research because I don't think we have done a, necessarily a ton of due diligence in terms of, well, how did I trust that my GPU did something correctly versus, you know, my general purpose processor, which I understand a lot better. Uh, and so another way we're looking at this, which uh, is not working, is uh, frameworks. So we've, can, we've built out all of these you know, software systems to be able to pull in packages that we assume we trust. Uh, this is a great example from Dr. Ryan Craven's program at ONR. So NC State uh, runs a mini node program. And so everyone here is probably familiar with the RM, RF command, removes files, removes directories from your system. Uh, and everyone's probably also familiar with uh, the node package management, which is used to host JavaScript. So there's a function or a program uh, on NPM called RimRAF, and its sole job is to run RM-RF. 
And what you see there is highlighted in red is RM-RF on NPM is 278 kilobytes in size and has 137 files that is associated with it. Uh, that is absurd from a research uh, OS researcher background. That's absurdly large from a, you know, do I really need that much code and software to remove files and directories from my system? Uh, thankfully, ONR is obviously doing a lot of great work here in this space. Uh, being able to de-bloat de effectively these packages. Uh, and especially as we move more into, you know, we see ever-increasing amount of IoT and deployed devices, you know, do you really need 64 gigs of RAM on your, you know, your, your smartwatch or, you know, things like that? Like, you know, can we do, as, as security researchers, can we provide frameworks and tools for, for individuals to actually start making smaller, you know, well-defined, well-controlled packages, which likewise will make the formal methods process, which is, you know, pretty effective at, at securing things easier if we remove a lot of code that we have to keep within our trust boundaries. Uh, so this is actually a fun one uh, and kind of motivating a lot of where we're headed. Uh, you know, AI is going to make the problem both better and worse. Uh, so going back to my grad school days with what you see on the right, is Intel just in introduced the AASNI instructions, which would be encryption coprocessors built in within the system. Uh, GCC at the time did not support that. So, you know, myself, another grad student, dug into uh, the Intel processor manual and, you know, started, you know, learning bytecode and wrote up that code to basically build a 64-bit random number generator so that we could actually you know, get a random number without having to write, you know, our own pseudo random number generator code, because remember, don't roll your own crypto if someone else is going to give you something. Uh, and, you know, taking, you know, the, you know, an LLM like Google Bard's project, uh, what you see there is that the series of questions that I had to ask it to produce effectively the same code that that took us about four hours, four man hours to write. And it took me all about five minutes uh, with Google Bard. Uh, being able to produce that code. Uh, so obviously there's expert knowledge involved in that question asking, uh, which is, you know, a key part of this, because if, if you look through this, like a lot of the initial things that it generates is not what I actually would want. Like, so a lot of times it would generate, here's a 32-bit random number. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm working with 64-bit data and I need 64 bits of random number. Uh, so there's a, you know, that's where, you know, there's some, you know, some challenges still of like, you have to have expert knowledge. But I don't think from a security research side, and if we go to the next slide here, uh, everyone is necessarily going to agree with that we need expert knowledge. And obviously this isn't something I've had time to dig into deeper, but it was pretty interesting that, you know, on ChatGPT4 came out in March, and then all of a sudden the package repository in NPM uh, increased by like a million packages. So, you know, the ability for large language models to write code not necessarily code that's been looked at by an expert is certainly going to make the challenge as security researchers a lot harder. So we need to, you know, a lot of times we've thought about, uh, you know, vulnerability amplification and, you know, how to break things from homogenous systems. Like not everybody's running Windows, not everyone's running, you know, Linux. How do we make things more heterogeneous? Uh, we have to start rethinking, you know, how we're looking at systems from a larger, you know, mitigation amplification side of, you know, code is going to be generated faster than likely, you know, we fully understand yet. Uh, it's probably happening already. Uh, I don't have, you know, the perfect metrics on that, but from a security research standpoint, we need to think about the fact that there's, you know, maybe 
what, 30, 40 of us in this seminar. And there's probably, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people at any minute, you know, generally learning computer science, like say, say at Purdue alone. Uh, so how do we start actually addressing this in the short term? Um, obviously this is, you know, very, you know, a DOD focused slide, but ultimately if you think about uh, you know things we can't avoid ai i don't i'm not here to say like you know let's not use large language models uh you know i think there's a huge power in them time saving alone you know being able you know every time a new feature is introduced into the uh the intel development manual you know being able to have something that can ingest that and then at least kind of you know spit back the you know a shorter version of how this works is a huge help from the system development side so that's that's very impactful for me as as, as I develop more system code. Um, we do need to, however, train developers to understand what they're looking at. You know, it's kind of like you know, if you go to Stack Overflow, you copy paste the code and you hope it works. Uh, we now have large language models that'll generate a whole bunch of code for us, and we don't necessarily, you know, are we need to kind of introduce a training mechanism for people to look at that and really understand it better than just copy paste stack overflow code because now we're going to get coded an even faster rate. Um, and however, I think, you know, a big thing that we, we can do is uh, on the DoD side, they're considered open architectures. Uh, they're standard models, basically. So if you're familiar of like the OSI model and networking, it's basically guides to how things should interoperate. And the reason why, if we can define those well-defined interoperability guides, we can leverage a huge amount of you know, strong research in formal verification, in secure hardware and secure operating system to secure those interface boundaries. And by doing that, you know, at least we may be able to start compartmentalizing out some of the security vulnerabilities that exist within one part of the system and maybe not another, and trying to, to kind of you know, provide some of the resiliency that we need there. And so, you know, more in the near term, this is, you know, a phenomenal talk of, if you haven't seen it, scaling the security researcher to eliminate OSS vulnerabilities once and for all. Um, you know, I don't know if anyone's seen this, but it's, you know, I was talking to some other professors from Purdue today, and, you know, just the code QL part is hugely impactful, but this was one security researcher found a vulnerability in open source software use code QL to scan that vulnerability, found the same vulnerability implemented, you know, almost exactly in a, in a number of different open source repositories, then use the open rewrite tool set, which is another open source project to take their vulnerability uh, patch, and then, you know, start transforming it to all of the different code systems. And then finally used Modern, which is a third tool to automate pull requests for all of those, those repositories. Uh, the, interesting part about this is now you've got 5200 pull requests on github and is that responsible disclosure because you just basically told 5200 repositories that they have a zero day in their system or you know a day zero day plus one uh, obviously it's not responsible disclosure the author of that paper uh, you know, agrees with that but i think this is almost where we need to go because this is effectively mitigation amplification so we have this DevSecOps loop that tells us develop software and run it through a series of tools to protect that software repository. In this case, we're opening up that loop to encompass all of the open source software that's out there, which has been labeled critical infrastructure, uh, according to the US government now, 
And so not just working as security researchers to solve one problem on our, you know, our set, how do we take our research that we're, we're developing, and this is just one example of that, and be able to, to bring that to a larger community as we're conducting that research. However, longer term, you know, a lot of the research that we do at Riverside Research, uh, you know, based off of, a, you know, another paper, trust-based trust security or trust is considered harmful. A lot of this comes down to trust relationships. How do, the, how do we implicitly trust the hardware to do something? How do we implicit, you know, implicitly trust the software to do something? So if you trust, like a good example of this is if you trust your friend to watch your house while you're on vacation to say, take care of your dogs or you know, water your plants, that friend could easily rob your house. They have a key to your house, you've trusted them, but then they've you know, reneged on that trust. Similarly, in system software, we, you know, we kind of build those same sorts of trust relationships. We trust the operating system to keep applications separate. We trust hypervisors to you know, schedule VMs or operating systems. Uh, we trust the hardware layer, like the, the memory management unit, don't mess up memory, you know, don't they do things like Spectre and Meltdown, you know, don't have these bugs in the system. And you see that a lot of times in assumptions of, you know, this is what our threat model is, this is what we're addressing, but you know, we, we have a larger you know, surface that we're trying to deal with. Uh, and ultimately, if you look at a lot of vulnerabilities, you, know, you get into the application and then it's looking at how do I get privilege escalation in the kernel? How do I do VM escape at the hypervisor layer? And you know, we, we just kind of try to get down to that bottom of the tower to compromise the entirety of the system. So how do we think about that differently? So in the short term, you know, trying to get us off of that, you know, reactive posture a little bit, you know, we have a lot of good work that you that's occurring now in tagged architectures. Uh, that's obviously a little bit further away. Uh, a lot of that's happening on the RISC-V side. Uh, there is a hopefully soon to be commercial version of it uh, called Arm Morello that came out of the, uh, the Cherry line of processors uh, that will allow us to start, you know, building more hardware tagging. Uh, if you look at the you know the larger x86 arm side you're getting cache tagging now uh, obviously not a lot of tags in there but uh, you know a little bit to start you know working with uh, and experimenting with uh, likewise where i you know i did a lot of my work was in the hypervisor introspection work uh, however you're still reliant pretty heavily on third-party systems and software to to provide those capabilities also you'll you've, you'll often take a pretty big performance hit that most people won't want to to necessarily give up if you're if you're doing a you know hypervisor introspection um, another you know interesting problem in this space is the coprocessors uh, great paper out there called uh, putting out the hardware dumpster fire uh, we've actually ceded a lot of responsibility to our coprocessors. So your GPU, your uh, network card, they all do a lot of things that, you know, have been offloaded from what the kernel would necessarily historically have done in the past. And so there's a huge, I'd say, gap of research and, you know, looking at what those trust relationships mean. You know, how do you know the network card isn't modifying or, you know, snooping on the traffic that you're potentially passing? You know, we formally may have verified parts of the kernel, but who's looking at the network card? Who's looking at the GPU? Uh, likewise, you know, you're developing software, assuming in an anti-tamper space, and I built a huge fortress of security and hardware and software for the general purpose processor, and then I put my really expensive, you know, code 
into a GPU and then an adversary comes along, pops off the, the GDR RAM, and now they have your uh, AI model. So right now, the, the solutions that we have been looking at is leveraging things that have existed in COTS hardware, namely the, the memory management unit since the Pentium 3. Uh, you know, being able to, you know, redefine the way things work by just, you know, changing up things ever so slightly that the, the processor from a hardware level doesn't necessarily care. Uh, so this work has been done uh, on Zen, and this was done by uh, some number of colleagues uh, at Riverside Research, Scott Brooks, Jackson Smith, and Corey Reichel. And the work that they're doing is what you can see here in this very small print is if you look on the left in, in virtualization, uh, you have physical memory, you have guest physical memory, and then you have the actual guest guest physical memory in terms of that layering, and then they do the virtual memory. Um, and what you see is all the way on the left, you have Zen virtual addresses in that left picture, and then you have the guest physical addresses on the right picture, and then you have the true mappings in the middle, and everything in red is where they overlap. And so when you're doing a VM escape attack, you're trying to use what's shared mapping to break out. And it turns out the MMU and the uh, IOMMU will work if you configure them and then remove all mappings. You leave the physical mappings alone. Uh, you can, and what you see on the right is where we've removed all of those shared mappings. And then what you see in the blue is where we've removed the actual uh, extended page table mappings. So we create, we leave the physical addresses alone. We you know, remove them completely from Zen. So you, know, you kind of excise out that entire memory and the guest will continue to run with Zen operating. Obviously you're gonna lose some capabilities there because if you remove those mappings, then you remove the ability to do things like ballooning, uh, being able to increase the size of, of the guest. But if you think in an edge processing world, you're oftentimes are just deploying something to the edge, you're locking it down. And in this way, we're you know, removing some of that, that uh, mapping. Obviously there's other challenges there still in terms of denial of service that you know, a bad guest could, could still just maliciously deny service through uh, resource utilization. But you know, just looking at you know, things like memory management unit and the IOMMU and the ex you know, extended page tables, you can actually change a lot of the, the system configuration without building new hardware and oftentimes not changing a lot of software as well. Uh, another separate approach is, you know, if, you've, if you're familiar with the formal methods uh, work out there, there's, you know, historically, then there's been a lot of, you know, specification using things like Cock and Isabel to prove out that the code uh, matches the specification. Uh, on our side, we looked at both TLA plus and universal composability. Uh, universal composability is actually a pretty interesting one, and that's the one that we're using as part of the, uh, the DARPA Hardin effort led by uh, Mike, uh, Mike Clark at our organization. And he, and that started out as a cryptographic system uh, type prover where you are building out a cryptographic protocol and there's some probability that there is going to be you know, a vulnerability in your cryptographic protocol. And so the work they're doing there is extending that out of the cryptography domain using easy uh, universal composability or easy UC which is a domain specific language to actually start composing it for system of system design. And so the work that they've been doing is building actual models of the secure boot world uh, for UEFI. 
and they've been actually being able to uncover a number of undefined system behaviors as UEFI interacts with system management mode. And in doing so, they've been able to plug the gap between those two worlds of UEFI and SMM to remove vulnerabilities potentially before they were actually introduced uh, in production UEFI code. Uh, longer term, you know, an interesting area of research is if you move in, in the DoD parlance, it's model-based system engineering. Everywhere else, it's that digital twinning. Uh, how do we take modeling and SIM capabilities that we're developing? In this case, we've developed modeling and SIM capabilities on the universal composability side, and we're trying to use them to generate both the formal proofs and the software that would run in the digital twin to give you further guarantees of that system itself. However, there's obviously things where we don't want to necessarily get rid of like Cock and Galena, uh, you know, things like flight controllers and certain types of software that are very safety critical. You know, there's really good use cases for those there. Like, you know, being able to prove that the flight controller will always operate on the timing that you want uh, is always very helpful in terms of, of securing the system. So putting the, all of this together, you know, is what, what we look at in these systems is how do we enumerate attacker capabilities and you know you have all of these different types of attacks like out of replay timing you know row hammer meltdown specter you know enumerating all of those across hardware and software we have to you know start doing you know doing that that full capture of all of those those security type uh, vulnerabilities and then we have to do at the design level so actually you know starting security prior to actually writing code you know figuring out what those those design types type of parameters are and then we have to kind of you know actually constrain the system to what we can and what we can't protect against and what we need to potentially develop uh, future capabilities uh, so a good good example of this is where you know we look at a lot of problems of on, on the edge case of you know if you may take a action if you're detecting you know an anomaly or a security vulnerability on a commercial system but likewise, if you're operating on, say, a flight controller, you and the pilot is, you know, 100 feet off the ground, you wouldn't necessarily turn the flight controller off 100 feet off the ground if you detected an anomaly or an attack. So you have to look at how these, as researchers, we have to look at how these systems as a whole function from a hardware and a software layer, and then actually start composing that full system of system security model. And by doing that, we'll be able to, you know, introduce security ideally earlier. And we also looking to scale it and being able to, you know, build it into these large ABIs or open architectures as we start providing all of those piece parts and then being able to pull these full systems together, constrain them with, you know, known tools, you know, scaling the security, the security software developer so that we can actually, you know, not just solve the problem for one project and pulling all that together as a, as a community, you know, that's where I think we can, we can actually start making that large scale impact of, of actually solving this challenge of, you know, ever increasing uh, security vulnerabilities. And with that, I will take any questions. Go for it. Yeah. Am I ready? Yeah. Uh, 
simple question like i just saw in the presentation near the uh, supply chain uh, the graphs which you drew yes uh, over there yeah this one uh, i just noticed that the supply chain part was only limited to hardware and firmware any specific reason for it like why is it not uh, going on to the application or uh, application of the software end as well so yeah on the supply chain side there's you that's biased from from my perspective of like we have so a lot of times we'll have actual hard hardware supply chain analysis of who is building you know this this chip where is it coming from what's its country of origin and the software supply chain is what we've historically called software assurance uh, and software bill of materials so that's really you know there's a little bit of a gray area in in, in need of definition of Okay, where is the hardware supply chain end from physical devices? And then where do we start saying, okay, this firmware that was baked into the chip is part of the software supply chain, or is it all part of the software supply chain? Any anything that, you know, all the way down to, to like the ROM uh, portion of the system and, and looking at, at that. So that that's where, you know, historically we did a lot of code signing, we did a lot of trusted boot, uh, we did, you know, you know Obviously, there's a whole host of like, you know, you know signing of your public key and, and private key and doing all that before you ever start anything on a system, you can get it down to, you know, very granular levels where you have microprocessors that are verifying the firmware as it's loaded, uh, which is obviously usually overkill for a lot of uh, solutions that you need. Uh, but, you know, looking at, I think that's an interesting gap ultimately to explore of, you know, where is the software supply chain end? And where does the hardware supply chain start and who's responsible for it? You know, as if, if I'm developing an application, do I need to know where my management engine code came from on my Intel processor? Uh, those are things that, you know, we, we as a community need to, to figure out who's responsible for which portion and, and then how do we you know, manage that trust relationship. Yeah, I've got a question from um, from online. Yeah, uh, working with the OS, the OS receives messages and interrupts by other components, which are then handled, converted, and sent through the kernel for execution. There are better strategies to protect memory corruption types of attacks, as you mentioned, ASLR and DEP, etc. But there may be strategies to have a seemingly legitimate legitimate component that maliciously injects valid instructions to cause the machine to perform a, in a compromised manner. Using mecha mechanisms like encryption built into the processors now, what strategies do you suggest regarding message assurance to reduce message spoofing and or instruction injection types of attacks? It's a great question. Uh, so part of it, I will, you know, biasly answer because the the interrupt uh, work drove a lot of uh, my thesis uh, research, and uh, you can actually do a lot of really interesting things with just interrupts alone, and being able to partition the system based off of those those interrupts, and you can actually reconfigure interrupt controllers, and internal to the CPU itself, there's uh, interprocessor interrupts that you can start actually leveraging and taking back to, you know, just the good old fashioned access control uh, time, time and space of like, rather than sharing everything. A lot of work I, I did early in my career was, you know, should the keyboard driver ever talk to necessarily, you know, maybe the, the network card? Well, probably not. And you can, you can create, you know, customized interrupt setups to, to partition out 
those portions of the system. Uh, in terms of message passing itself, like so if you're, you know, you built a message passing microkernel, uh, I, encryption might be too heavyweight of a, of a solution, uh, depending on how you, you set that up. Uh, in terms of if you have everything's encrypted and then is decrypted at the same time, I think confidential computing is where that's trying to head, but it's containing, you know, that specific user's code which could be as simple as an application or as you know as large as a you know a linux kernel itself uh, which we saw in some sgx instances um, you know the ideal scenario that i try to target is how do you break things down to you know this like the smallest compartment so in this case like maybe every function potentially would be you know being able to pass messages which is where i would see encryption may struggle if everything is encrypted between between those those systems uh, there is a huge body of work um, in program analysis and being able to determine, you know, those control flows through the system of, you know, A should be talking to B. A uh, big per part of our research uh, was uh, looking at uh, memory management units to, to block those types of transactions. So actually generating a page fault to then, you know, basically do that, that access control check. Um, so overall, you know, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a great question. Uh, I think if encryption, you know, is a, you know, if it, if it works out that it's fast enough that you can encrypt every single message between, uh, those boundaries at a function level, that would be amazing. Uh, but you may need to be doing a lot of trades of how much you're putting in, in one bucket and how much you're putting in another bucket to manage that performance impact. So a big thing that I didn't mention, that I failed to mention in this talk is oftentimes when people look at security, they want a performance impact of less than 1%. Uh, and so encryption, you know, when you add that in, usually you're looking at, at a larger impact uh, on performance. Another question? Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, tagged uh, uh, You mentioned uh, tagged architectures. Um, I'm not entirely sure what that is. Could you explain what that is? So I'm not a tag architecture expert, but I will do do my best. Uh, so in the, the ones that I'm familiar with are uh, Cherry and the pipe architecture. And so assume every part of your, you know, your code base has a tag associated with it. And the tags allow you to perform certain actions, either data or instructions, instruction actions. And if you don't have a, you know, the tag associated with it, the correct action, then you're denied being able to take that, that action. Uh, that's a very high level uh, you know, overview of it. There's, there's a, a, a lot of good papers out there. I'd recommend looking up the, uh, the Cherry processor uh, for, you know, for, so it's C-H-E-R-I uh, for a bit more of a, you know, a detailed explanation. Uh, but ultimately, it, it's it's kind of a, a very fine-grained hardware access control-based uh, technique. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Very, uh, basic like a stupid question, but uh, I saw something on your slides, the uh, which is named like operator safety. Yes. Uh, so. I like whatever you went through with the software security and you know securing the hardware. Uh, if we think as a developer, like somebody wants to explore new areas or do something kind of that, mm -hmm. uh, when we implement these kind of security, often the developers will go like, 
I don't have the freedom to do this or I don't have the freedom to do that. So uh, they might uh, want like, you know, extended access. Like how do we, uh, when you talked about access control as well uh, over here, like uh, how do we ensure that we are giving the freedom, like in terms of software or the hardware, we are giving the freedom to the developers or the people who are making the chips and stuff. We are, we are giving them the freedom to explore stuff while ensuring the security is there. So is, yeah, that, is that a gap or? It is. So it's a, it's definitely a, a, a large gap in this space in that we, we can't expect the developers to implement our security mechanisms. Uh, so the work that we do in formal methods, uh, actually in, on the front end of it, uh, has a, a very simple GUI of, you know, building blocks. Like you put this block, this block talks to that block. And so in system engineering, you have a, a very, very well-defined control flow of, of how data moves through the system. And in that front end GUI on the back end, it's actually generating all of the formal methods code uh, that, so you don't necessarily have to be a PhD in terms of, of understanding that. Uh, likewise, on the developer side, uh, a big problem that, that we've seen and people are moving away from is, you know, making developers annotate their code uh, to kind of put in the, the hooks. Uh, ultimately, you know, how to get, you know, get the security into the system has to happen usually without the developer or the operator uh, working on the system. So if you develop something for, you know, a product, you can't expect someone to, you know, open up command line and start debugging it in the field if it's not working. Uh, you know, it has to be pretty much a, a seamless solution, uh, which is where we've we've focused pretty heavily on just, you know, memory management units or, you know, existing ARM or x86 processors to, to build those things in the underlying kernel or virtualization layer so that the application layer is un unimpeded by those uh, protections. Okay, I think that's all we have. Thank you. Thank you.